You guys can uh, grab your Bibles if you have them and remain standing to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10 again today, believe it or not. Matthew chapter 10. Um, I'm going to read again verses 26 through 33, but... Uh, we're going to be focusing on 32 and 33, so I'll read all the way through them and then we'll come back and look at those two verses alone. Um, so Matthew chapter 10, verses, verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I'm going to read 32 and 33 again. This is where we're going to focus. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come and to worship and gather. Lord, we, we want to start off by just thanking You and praising You for who You are. Lord, You're so good to us. And any amount of time that we would spend in introspection would show that we definitely don't deserve to come before You, to come before Your throne, to worship You, to speak to You, to have Your ear inclined to us, um, let alone uh, breath, uh, food, sustenance. We, we don't deserve the things that we've been given. And Father, we, we praise You because You're good. You've given us these things out of Your, your mercy and Your grace. Um, and we thank You for that. Father, we come acknowledging that You are holy, 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 and we are not. And so when we, we come to sing and we come to study Your Word, Lord, I pray that we would always come with a spirit of of just reverence and awe, for You are a consuming fire. You always have been and You always will be. I pray that we would keep that in, in our minds always as we approach You, that yes, we do come crying, Abba, Father, that we can call You Papa, but that You are also holy and righteous, and we are not, and we, we, we should often tremble at that thought, and I pray that we would never forget it. Father, we, we are a sinful people, and we confess to You that we are sinners. 
in need of mercy and grace every moment of every day. And we thank You that You've given that in Your Son, Jesus, and His life and death, resurrection and ascension. Lord, that's the reason that we're here. We want to be a Gospel-centered church, a Gospel-centered people, a people who acknowledge our faults, who exalt You and Your grace and then go forward and show other people Your grace and Your mercy. Father, we pray that You would bless the Word as we come and gather. It's been read aloud as You have commanded and we pray that You would just bless that You would work in our, uh, in our midst, that You would give us eyes to see You and Your character, give us ears to hear what You would have to say and give us hearts that will be uh, able to receive it with gladness and joy even though sometimes we have to be uh, broken up before we can be uh, pliable. Lord, I pray that You would do all that in our midst through the power of Your Spirit. Father, I pray uh, this morning for uh, some... Friends of ours and Sydney Grogan who are uh, spending and being spent in Toronto and planning a church there. And Father, they've, uh, the Grogans have experienced a death in the family this week and I pray that you would just comfort their family. I pray that you'll bless in the, the services that are to come. I pray that you'll give Jordan the opportunity that I'm almost positive he will take to proclaim the gospel to uh, people that... Uh, there would almost certainly be a lost person there. I pray that you would use this uh, tragedy, this death, to, to gather your sheep as the gospel goes forward. And I pray that you would um, work in their midst. Father, I pray even for our local church here, just these people, our own family, um, that we, we all come with issues and, and family uh, struggles with sicknesses, with jobs, with finances, all these different things that um, we, we need to come and lay at you, uh, at your throne, and and take your uh, yoke upon us, Father. We 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 need to shed these things as we come, and we just look to you and your word this morning. I pray that you would help uh, do that in us this morning, and and that we would be able to focus on you and who you are. God, I also lift up to you the, the many other churches that are doing the exact same thing that we're doing at this very moment. Um, I think of uh, our friends at Reflection Church as Shannon preaches through the book of Acts. Uh, uh, Matt Morgan at Escalade is going through the book of John. Um, uh, Mike Gordon at Presbyterian, they're going through the book of Galatians. God, many other pastors that we know who are just opening your word this morning and, and groups of people who are who are, are coming and they're hungry and, and we, we just need uh, to be fed. And so I pray that you bless in all these different services, even the ones that, that I haven't named, and that you would strengthen your people through the, the preaching of your word. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in the Middle East who are struggling, uh, who are being persecuted, who are being killed, who are being killed for their faith. Um, and all around the world, Christian brothers and sisters who are experiencing that. God, strengthen your bride. Purify your bride through uh, these things that we often see as terrible tragedies. Um, and help us to never forget our brothers and sisters. To pray for them often. Father, I lift up to you our own government. Our local government here in, in this uh, county and town. Our state government. Our national government. Lord, I, I lift up to you our president advisors and his staff 
Lord, He is in power because You put Him there. And I pray that every, every moment that we've spent bad-mouthing Him and the policies and the things that we don't like, above and beyond the moments that we've spent praying for Him like You've commanded us to, I pray that You'd uh, help us to repent of that because that is a sin. We should be praying for our leaders. And God, we lift them up to You. I pray that You would help our nation and help us as Christians to be, to be bold and to be strong in our faith, to act like Christians when we leave here. Um, and that goes for the things that we say, the things that we do, the places we go, the people we communicate with. Help us to act like Christians in a non-Christian world. God, I pray for the Laba people of China this morning who for centuries have spent their, their time worshiping their ancestors and animals and, and, and worthless idols falling right into the pit of Romans 1, worshiping created things and four-footed beasts rather than worshiping the Creator God. I pray that You would raise up a missionary who would go to those people and, and explain to them the Gospel. Lord, the, the Gospel hasn't yet taken root there like it has in other places in China. And I pray that, that You would do that there. As You've said in Your Word that, that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations. In Jesus' name. And so I pray that that promise would come true for those people. Lord, again, bless our time together as we look at this passage of Scripture. And most of all, I pray that we would leave here with a better understanding of who Jesus is. And I pray that you'd help me to preach this. in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you look at verse 32, you see the word so. That's, that's going to be my intro this morning. So, um, we've seen this word over and over. Could also be therefore, same Greek word. Um, it means in light of the facts. Since what has previously been said is true, then what is about to be said is also true. So, Let's talk about what we learned last week. We saw that what Jesus is doing at this point in this, this discourse or this monologue is He's calming the fears of His disciples. They're about to be sent out. They are the first twelve that are going to be sent out to the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel who have for, for millennia have been God's chosen people as far as they know. And... They're going out to that group of people and saying, you need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to turn. Change your, your mind about sin and turn to God. And so you can imagine, these 12 men are afraid. They've got some fears. They've got some reservations about what this is going to be like. Again, he goes in verse 16 and begins to explain to them that it's not going to just be accept or reject, but some people are, are literally going to kill you. Drag you before courts. They're going to put you on trial. They're going to kill you. Brother will hand over brother. Father, child, child, father. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. He's 
He said that, and then, so now he's kind of trying to calm their fears. And so what we did last week is we took 26 through 31, and we broke it up into three different um, uh, attributes or characteristics of God that should give comfort to the disciple of Jesus. And this comes down to us as we leave here and we go out to different places where we, we live and where we work and where we play and we look for opportunities to engage the society with the gospel. Hey, we're scared. We, we, we do this often. We survey our groups. What are your biggest fears? Boom, 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 boom. We all have fears when it comes to sharing the gospel. We are afraid. Um, Again, most of the time, our fears are things like, you know, they might look at me funny or, or they might ask me a question that I'm not ready for or, or they might not want to talk to me again. But we're still afraid. And so these, these comforts or this solace should work for us. If we can come to terms with what Jesus is saying here and we can, we can believe it to be true, really believe it, not just acknowledge it, but really believe it, we should also be comforted. And so in verses 26 and 27... We looked at the purpose of God. That no matter what happens, the, the gospel will go forth. Um, things that have been covered, revealed, hidden. The teachings that Jesus was giving to His disciples at this point in history. It will get out. And it has gotten out. It's all over the world. There are Christians. The church is being built. The gospel will go forward. The Word of God always accomplishes that for which it was intended to accomplish. And we've, we've uh, used Isaiah 55 a couple of times to remind ourselves that the Word of God does not return void, ever. When the Gospel goes forward, people are either converted, or are hardened, and they hate it. But it's still doing what it's supposed to do. It is the power of God. And so it always works. It always accomplishes what God has intended for it to accomplish. And this is His purpose. He's always worked through His people as they carry His Word. And they are obedient to His Word. In the Old Testament, the nations looked at Israel while they obeyed the Word. In the New Testament, the people go out to the nations with the Word of God. But it's always worked that way. The Word is given to the people and then they take it and God gathers His people. That's always been the plan. That will always be the plan. Right now, the church is God's agent of, of work and ministry on the earth. We are reconcili uh, reconcilers. We have the ministry of reconciliation. We're, we're bringing people to God and we're, we're sharing the gospel. And this has always been His plan. No plan of God can be thwarted. It doesn't matter what anybody says to you or does to you. It's working. When the Word goes out, it works. So that's the purpose of God. If you can remember that and really believe it, Hey, that's comfort. I don't have to, to worry if I'm faithful and, and obedient. The Word goes out. It is accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish. Second thing we saw was the sovereignty of God. In verse 28, we saw that God is sovereign over physical and spiritual matters. That there are people who can and will kill your body. But we shouldn't be afraid of them because that's all about your body. Jesus says, you should be afraid of the one who can kill your body and your soul. He's sovereign. Man doesn't have that authority. They can control your body. They can kill you. They can do certain things. Only God has control over physical and spiritual. 
So fear God. Don't let the fear of men dictate your actions, but rather fear God. That will dictate your actions and that will bring about obedience. And we talked about what it means to fear God. It's not running away from Him like a spider or a cockroach. It's understanding of who He is, acknowledging His holiness and His, his, his awe and, and His power, and then realizing who we are, and then acting accordingly and properly based on that uh, knowledge. Sovereignty of God. Then the third one was the providence of God. That God is sovereign over all things, but then He uses His uses that sovereignty to providentially work in all things. So every situation, every moment, every word, every conversation, every every situation that's ever taken place, God is working in those situations to bring about His desired end goal. He's working providentially in everything. And we saw that in verses 29 and 31 with these, the, the micro level of the sparrows who are seemingly worthless to human beings and then the, the hairs on your head seems like you know, meticulous stuff that doesn't really matter. And Jesus says, you know, your Father in heaven, He's working. He's, he's alongside every sparrow that falls, every hair that grows or falls or stops growing. God's there and He is, is complete is in complete control of that. And so why would you be afraid of going out and sharing the gospel? If he can take care of those things and he's intimately involved in those things, then of course he's going to be involved with you going out as his messenger to the world, proclaiming his gospel. He's, he will take care of you. And so all of these things, again, when we believe this, really believe it, we will, our, our fears will begin to dwindle and subside and, and we'll be bold in the proclamation of the gospel. So, verse 32, in light of all that, he continues, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So, Jesus goes straight into this idea of acknowledging Him. Why? That's our question. Why is he talking about acknowledging him? What's, what's his goal here in these last two verses? Before we get to that, I want to take a minute and I want to talk about this idea of free will. A lot of people, there's a, there's a lot of debate on the topic of free will and this idea of free will and what it means and doesn't mean. And, and most of the debate that goes into free will is centered around salvation. Is, is, does man have free will or is it God's will when a person becomes a Christian? And, and Scripture is clear that um, we have been given the power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's, that's clear. I want to talk about philosophy of free will. When it comes to just the things that you do every day, free will. The definition of free in the Oxford Dictionary, is able to act as one wishes or not under the control of another. In other words, I can do what I want. Right? Able to act as one wishes. That is free. Able to act as one wishes. What is the motivation behind your actions in that definition? It is your wishes. You will do what you wish 
to do always. And we've talked about this. We can go into a philosophical debate anytime about whether or not you do things that you don't want to do. Nobody ever does anything that they don't want to do. So the motivation behind all of your actions is your wishes. Your wish, your personal desire dictates how you act. Whatever you desire, that the final outcome of a set of options, you're going to act to get to that outcome, whatever it may be. We've talked about a job. People say, well, I go to work every day and I don't want to go to work and so I, don't, I do what I don't want to do. No, weigh the outcomes. If you don't go to work, you don't make money, you lose your job, you can't pay your bills, you end up homeless. You do go to work, you make your money, you pay your bills, you have a home, you have a life. Hey, it's not fun, but that's what you want is to have a house rather than not have a house. Therefore, you do what you want to do because that brings about your outcome. Your, your desire, your motivation influences your decisions. With that being said, no decision that you've ever made is free of motivation. It may be your own motivation. It may be in here and not outside of you, but it's still yours. It's not free of any motivation. If there was no motivation, you would make no choices. You're always motivated to make some sort of decision in when, when decisions are, are laid out before you and you have to make choices. You're always motivated by something. You have to make choices and those choices are constrained by your desires, your fears, your delights, inclinations, reservations. All of these things go into influencing the choices that you make. And the final outcome is key. What do I want? In the final analysis, when it's all done, what do I want to have? Or, or what's the goal? Again, like going to work. The goal is, I'm going to make money and pay my bills. That's why we work. If we didn't get paid, probably wouldn't go to work. I would not go to work if I did not get paid. That's my outcome. That's why I work. And so, that being said, in these verses that we've looked at, 26 through 33, we have options. Two of them. We can fear those who kill the body, be afraid, or we can fear God. Those are our options. Only two. And the outcome of each of those options is different. And so your desire to see either outcome is going to influence how you act. You follow me? You want to see an outcome. And so Jesus, in these verses, these final two verses of this section, is appealing to our will. Is it free? Well, it's free because I can do what I want, but I'm still constrained to do what I want. So... Is it free or not free? I'll let you decide. He's appealing to the will by giving us two available outcomes. Here's what's going to happen if you do this. Here's what's going to happen if you do this. Now act. Which do you want? Here's what you'll do. That's, that's what he's doing. He's appealing to the will. So in other words, when we come to verse 32, Jesus is saying, if after seeing the purpose of God, realizing and understanding the sovereignty of God understanding the providence of God, if you're still inclined after all of that to fear men who can only kill your body, you're still more afraid of what might happen in the physical world than what might happen in the, the spiritual realm. If you're still afraid, then perhaps you should just know the, the outcome to these things, the end goal. Once you know the end goal, then you might make a, a, a more um, uh, educated decision. So what he's saying here. So verse 32, so everyone, stop right there. We've talked about how this, this 
discourse, some of it is very contextual. Don't go to Gentiles. Don't go to Samaritans. Only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's very contextual. That does not apply to us because we wouldn't be here if that were still the case. But there are some words that when we read them, we find out, hey, this is, this is telescoping out and comes down through the ages to other disciples. This is one of those words. Everyone. Everyone who acknowledges me. We can claim this for ourselves. We can take these two verses and tell them to anybody on the planet. And it will be true. And we will not be misleading them in any way. We can go to anybody and say, hey, if you will acknowledge Christ before men, He will acknowledge you before His Father. But if you deny Him before men, He will deny you before His Father. You can say that and it is always true. Everyone, friends, co-workers, children, anybody, cashier at Walmart, anybody, you say this verse, it is true. So he's telescoping out everyone who acknowledges me. Now I want to focus on this for just a second. Acknowledging Christ. This does not mean everyone who says that I existed or I exist. A lot of times when we use the word acknowledge, that just means you know I, I took note of the existence of something. That's not what it's saying here. This is not just this idea of, of some sort of deism. Well, I, yeah, I acknowledge that there's Jesus or there is a God. The word here for acknowledge is homo lageo. Made up of two words. You can hear them in there. Homo or homo means the same. And lego means to speak or to say. So the word acknowledge is to speak or say the same thing as. We use the word confess. That's what that means. When we say we confess something, it means you're saying the same thing as. And some of your older translations will say, uh, everyone who confesses me before men. That's the word, confess. Now, at this time period, uh, a secular document might be drawn up and to, uh, to acknowledge or to confess, to homolegeo, that document would be to um, agree... Two parties come to an agreement in that document. It's, it's consensual. I say the same thing as this person. I'm going to sign my name to it. That is to confess. In our culture, we talk about confessing sin. That means, when we say we confess sin, that, just, that doesn't just mean asking for forgiveness. To confess sin means to agree with God about what it is. To say, Father, I've done this. And it is sin. Because you said it's sin, and I'm going to agree with you that it's sin. And so you agree with God about what it is. You, you um, agree with the charges that are brought against sin. This is sin. It is against you, Father. You hate this sin. Therefore, I hate this sin. It needs to be gone. It needs to be mortified. That's confessing sin. It's not just saying, I sin, forgive me. It's, it's, it's real. It's agreeing with God. Saying the same thing. Now, in that idea, you can see that when it comes to confession, there's this picture of two sides. And you, as you confess, you pick a side. And you are agreeing with one side as opposed to the other. Confession. Saying the same thing. Um, we, as a church, are what is called a confessional church. We are confessing Baptists. We, we hold to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, which means... Those guys got together and say, hey, we all agree that this is what the Bible says. We confess. We say the same thing. And they wrote it out really detailed. They signed it. We come to it and say, hey, I think those guys are right. 
we confess the same thing they do about the Scriptures. This is the doctrine the Scripture teaches. We confess, we agree, we say the same thing as those people who drew up that confession. That's the word confess. Here translated in the English Standard Version, acknowledge. So what does it mean when he says, everyone who acknowledges me, or literally it says, everyone who confesses in me? Well, it means to agree with Christ, to agree with Jesus, to associate yourself with Him, to identify yourself with Christ. When there's two sides, Christ and not Christ, you say, I'm on the side of Christ. I say the same thing as Him. And that plays out in, in what I've divided into three different areas that are very important when it comes to confession or confessing Christ or acknowledging Christ. And that is His nature and character, His teaching and doctrine and His work. Nature and character. The Bible, which is God's Word. If Jesus is God, then every word of Scripture comes from the Word of God. Christ, they're all red letters, in other words. All of this is red letters. So we put all this together and we learn some things that Jesus said about Himself. For example, He is eternal God. We agree with that. We confess that. I, I said the same thing Jesus said. He's eternal God. I say He's eternal God. He says He was incarnate as a human being. I say, I agree, He was incarnate as a human being. That He had two natures. 100% God and 100% man. I agree and confess that. Say the same thing as He says. Don't, don't understand it, can't explain it, but I agree with it, I confess it. He's the Lord of all, supreme um, sovereign over all things. I agree with that, I confess it. He is the exclusive way to eternal life. He's the only way that anybody will ever see heaven or get to the Father is Jesus Christ alone. I confess that because that's what He said. I say the same thing as He said. In His teaching and doctrine, when we unpack the Scriptures, you have the entire Old Testament and then the New Testament, Christ comes along and, and He changes it all, doesn't He? No, He doesn't. He takes the Old Testament teachings and the law and He drives it like a stake into the heart of every man and says, no, the, the, the standard is not relieved or, or the bar is not raised or, or lowered. It's actually raised. Well, however that works. Depends on what you're playing, I guess. Um, he takes God's standard and He says, it's still the same. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to get to God? Fine. Perfection. That's the standard. See, a lot of people would say that Jesus came along and we don't have to li we listen to the law anymore. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And we don't have to obey any rules anymore. And That's called antinomianism or anti-law. That's not what Jesus said. He said, no, the law stands. But I've made a way through the law. I've obeyed the law on your behalf. And then in His work, we have to agree with Christ in His work. That He, he lived a perfect life under the law. The law of Moses, He obeyed it perfectly every moment of His life. Every second of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of His entire life was lived in perfect obedience to God. Every moment to the glory of God, giving God the maximum glory that He deserves every moment. He done that. He died on the cross to suffer under the wrath of God that we deserved in our place. That was His work. And he, the Bible says that. And so we agree that we, or with that. We confess that. 
He was raised bodily to life on the third day. He came back to life out of the grave. We confess that. He ascended to heaven. He's now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father over all things. That's what the Bible says. We confess that. That's what it means to confess in or acknowledge Jesus. We're saying the same thing about He says, or the same thing about Him that He says about Himself, and we're agreeing with Him in all of that. And we are uniting ourselves with Him in all that He says about Himself. That is what it means to acknowledge Christ. Now, there are false confessions where people say, oh yeah, I confess Christ, but they may take out one of those things. They may not believe that He's eternal God. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that Jesus is God, very God of very God, eternal God. And so, false confession, or it might be a real confession, it's just confessing nothing that the Bible teaches. It's not a real confession. Or they may add to it, and add something to it that Jesus hasn't said. Again, that's a false confession. So we acknowledge Christ or confess in Christ. And again, this just brings up this idea of the, the Christocentricity of discipleship or the, the Christ-centeredness of discipleship. See, the message and the mission ultimately rests in the person and the work of Christ. He said things like, um, for my sake, for my name's sake, proclaim the gospel. Here he says, acknowledge me. It's all the same thing. It's all Christ-centered. And when we say Christ-centered, we mean in His, his nature and character, in His doctrine and His teaching, and His work on our behalf. All of that. You subtract any of it, you've got a false Christ. And so that's what it means to confess in or acknowledge Christ. Notice again, we're not going to be persecuted for being nice. We don't have to fear being persecuted for, for telling someone our story or for trying really hard to love God and love people. We're going to be persecuted because we're siding with Jesus on things that He's spoken, taught about, the things that Scripture teaches. When we confess with Him and we agree that this is what the Bible says, that's when persecution comes. Because we're confessing in Christ, His teachings, His scandalous death on the cross, His exclusivity, the necessity of repentance and faith. All these things. You start confessing those things, that's when culture gets angry. 1 John 2.23 says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You start saying stuff like that around people who don't believe in the deity of Christ and when it says the Son of the Father, that is His deity that's always been understood as Jesus is God, even in His time. You start saying that and that's when people get upset. And that's when you will be persecuted, dragged, flogged, rejected, handed over, hated by all men for His namesake. When you confess, when you side with Jesus on these things. And then He says, He goes on to say, who acknowledges Me before men. So now, it's, it's getting real because now it's public. This, this is out loud where people can hear it. This is how the religious leaders find out about what you believe. This is how the secular government finds out who the real Christians are. This is how your brothers and, and your mothers and your fathers and your children find out what you really believe about certain issues. That's when persecution starts because you have confessed in Christ or acknowledged Christ before men. 
There's no such thing as a private Christian. Spiritual matters are not private matters. They are individual and they do concern your individual heart and soul, but they're not private. And we should not let people scurry away under the guise of, well, that's private. Because their souls are at stake. And so we, we make it a public thing. Make it a public matter. Because we care for their souls. So Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges Me before men publicly, I also will acknowledge before My Father who is in heaven. A lot of the same language. I also will acknowledge, confess. Same word. Jesus is saying, I, I will identify Myself with that person. I will agree with that person and they will agree with me. We are together. In other words, before the Father, Jesus says, that one's with me because we have confessed Him before men. It's interesting here that it says, or Jesus says, before my Father, when in verse 29, He says, your Father. There, He was comforting them. He's your heavenly Father. Nothing's changed, but here the, the what he's speaking of is different. So he, he's letting them know this is my father we're talking about. I have a relationship with the father that is it is necessary for you to understand. You need to get on this boat. You need to get on board. You want to be in good with me because I am in good with the father. He's my father. He's eternally been my father. And so to confess in me is is beneficial. Just like 1 John 2 again. No one denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So Jesus says, My Father, I have a relationship that you need. And then again, in heaven. This takes us back to the, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. His, his transcendence. That he's, he's, he's near and close to us and intimate as a father, but He's also transcendent over all things in heaven, governing all things. Jesus is saying this great God, transcendent God is my Father. And you want to confess me before men because if you'll do that, I will confess you before Him. And that's what we need or that's what you want. That's outcome number one of our options. Verse 33 starts with the word, but. This is, a, this is the contrast here. We're going to see the other side. Option two. Again, but whoever. Just to reiterate, all people. You can walk up to any person on the planet and say this. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because there are some things that a lot of Christians say to people that are simply not true. If I stand in a crowd of a thousand people and I say, God loves every one of you unconditionally the same, I have told a lie. Because God's love is based on the blood of Jesus shed for His people. And if someone's not a Christian, Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5, God hates evil doers. The love of God is mediated to us through the death of His Son. So I can't say that. That's false. Or, or to say, Jesus died for the sins of every person in the world. That's false. Because if their sins are paid for, everybody goes to heaven. That's universalism. We know the Bible doesn't teach that. That's why I'm reiterating the fact that this statement can be said to anyone. If you will confess Christ before men, He will confess you before His Father. But if you won't, He will deny you. If you deny Him, He will deny you. So whoever denies me before men I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, what does it mean to deny? 
when we think of the word deny, we think of worship. You know, that's that's not me. And it's kind of the same thing. It means to disown or forsake or refuse. So Jesus says, you disown me before men and I will disown you before my father. You forsake me before men and I will forsake you before my father. You reject me or refuse me before men, refuse to acknowledge me, refuse to know me, refuse to side with me before men, and I will refuse to side with you before my Father who is in heaven. That's outcome number two. Those are the two outcomes. The question is, why do we need Christ to confess us before the Father? Why are those two outcomes motivation for us to make a choice? Why is Jesus' confession of us before the Father motivation for us to dispel wrong fears and adopt right fears? And that brings us to the work of Christ as our great high priest. A lot of times when we talk about what Jesus has done for us, we remember certain things like He lived to fulfill the righteous demand of the law on our behalf. Which is true, and we need it. Or, or He died in our place to absorb the wrath of God. We need that, absolutely. Or He, he takes our sins away from us so that it no longer stands against us. That, that picture of expiation. We need that, and that's, that's great. Or He forgives the debt of sin that we owed before. It's good and we need that. But you notice that a lot of the things that we focus on about Christ's work for us is very me-centered. It's about me and what I get out of it. And then these are true things. And, and we do get everything from what Christ has done. But we also must remember that when it comes to the things that Jesus has done for us and His work on the cross, we can never forget that God is holy and righteous and He hates sin. And that's a problem for us. He can't just turn the other cheek. He can't just wipe it under the rug and say, well, I love you so much, I'm just going to forget about it. He's a good judge and He must punish sin. He has to deal with it. And that's why we can't forget about the work of Christ as our high priest. Now this language takes us back into the Old Testament and the, the worship of the tabernacle where this tent was erected where God would meet with His people. His presence would dwell in that tent. He couldn't dwell with everybody because they would have just died. So He had this special place. And in that tent, there was the first room, the holy place where the high priest would go daily, go in there and trim the wicks of the, the golden lampstand and get that stuff cleaned up and make sure the candles are lit and take the incense, the burning incense, and make sure it's still burning and... and Every Sunday they'd go in and take the bread of the presence and they'd eat that weak old bread and put out new bread. Those high priests, you read in the Old Testament, their garb, their, their outfit, one of the, the, the key things in their outfit was these, these rocks that they wore on their shoulders. And on these two rocks were um, etched the names of six of the twelve tribes of Israel. Six on this side, six on this side. And this was a picture of the high priest going in to this tent to worship God and He represented the 
people before God because the, the normal people couldn't go in. This was only a job for the priest. And so the priest represented the people before God. And he would do these things and he would offer the sacrifices and the worship on behalf of the people. And then, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come and, and he had a, a, a linen robe that he would wear. It wasn't like the normal outfit. It was this, this linen robe and he would go and first he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin because he was a sinful man. And then he would go into the most holy place behind the veil where the presence of God literally dwelt. And he would offer atonement for the sins of the people. Now, history tells us that these high priests for even at least a week before the Day of Atonement, they would already begin practicing the steps to, to, to offer this atonement because God had very clearly said, this is what you do. And when it comes to worshiping God, when He says, this is what you do, you do that. You don't do more. You don't do less. You do that. And so the priest would begin practicing for a week getting ready to go into the Holy of Holies. And if you can get this picture in your mind, it's been 364 days since he's been in there. And the presence of God has, has dwelt in there with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so he's, he's preparing himself. Not only does he have to remember the rituals, but he has to remember that he is a sinful man. And if he walks behind that veil into the presence of God with sin, he's done. Drop dead. Because you do not go before God with sin. And that's why, again, history tells us that they would tie a rope around his waist and they would let him in, you know, slowly. Because if he were to die, they'd have to drag him back out. Nobody can go in there and get him. So you can imagine the mindset that this high priest is in when he's going and he's, he's, he's offered atonement for his sins. They've, they've laid their heads on the, 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 or the their sins on the the, the scapegoat that's going to be sent out into the wilderness to picture carrying away the sins. He slaughtered the Passover lamb, uh, the, the, the lamb of atonement, so that that animal, he's carrying this blood into the veil and, and he's just hoping that he's done all the right steps. He's done it correctly. His, tones are pro or his sins are properly atoned for. He's carrying this blood in to make atonement for the sins of the people and he finally gets in the veil and there is the Ark of the Covenant. This box. That's what Ark means. It's a box. And this box made of acacia wood covered in gold. And on the top of this box is what we call the mercy seat normally. Or, or the atonement cover. In the Greek Old Testament, mercy seat. The, translate, the word is literally propitiation. The place where God meets with His people and takes the wrath away. This is where God would come on this cover where these two cherubim covered in gold were seated with their wings touching one another in this picture of constant, eternal worship of a holy God. And that's where God dwelt. And he would, the high priest would go in and he would carry this blood and this would be the atonement for the sins of the people. Sprinkling the blood on the altar and, and all these things that he'd done for the sins of the people. But he had to represent the people, common people could not go in there because they're sinful people. They're not consecrated like the priest was. And the point in all of that was God is holy and righteous and good and you are not. You can't go in there because you will die. You're totally 
depraved, and sinful. God cannot dwell among sinful people. You'll evaporate because He's holy. We cannot go before God in our sin. And so the priest would have to go in on behalf of the people, representing the people before God. Many people in our culture talk about being at peace with God. They say, I've made my peace with God. And that makes them feel better somehow. The problem is not that you feel okay with God. The problem is that you are sinful and God is not okay with you. Because He hates sin. Because all sin is an infringement on His character and His nature and an attempt to usurp His throne and knock Him off and be God yourself. And He is not okay with that. He's not at peace with that. He is not satisfied with that. God is holy and we are not. We have sinned. And God is in, in this holy, perfect, righteous anger. He is angry at sinners. So only the high priest could go into the very presence of God and only once a year and not without taking blood. And this hasn't changed. We need someone to go before the Father into the presence of God on our behalf because we are sinful. That was what the high priest did. He represented the people before God. Now how does all that relate to these verses? Well, The ultimate outcome of publicly confessing or acknowledging Christ is that Christ will confess us before the Father. He plays the role of the high priest, the great high priest, who represents the people before God. He is our advocate with the Father. Again, why do we need an advocate? Because we are sinful. And and God... Hates sin. We deserve His full wrath and judgment. And that wrath and that judgment must be satisfied. He can't just say, well, never mind. I'm not mad anymore. Never mind. Just forget it. Because He wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be just. He would not be a good judge. He would cease to be God if He done that. So when Christ died on the cross, He offered the final sacrifice for sin in Himself. Not only was He the great high priest, but He was also the Lamb who was slain. He also offered His blood to be the blood by which we enter the presence of God. And now He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He stands in the presence of the Father daily interceding for every single one of us who are in Him, who are confessed in Him and He confesses us. So for Christ to confess us means that He stands before the Father and He identifies Himself with us. He agrees with us and says, I'm with that one and that one is mine. He's our high priest representing us before the Father. And because His life was perfect and righteous and His death was acceptable, He can go before the Father perfectly, whereas we cannot. And God is then and only then at peace with us when before We were at enmity with Him and He with us. He is then and only then satisfied. Just like our song, the wrath of God is satisfied. And we are welcomed into His presence in Christ because of Christ's work as our great high priest. That's the outcome of option one. Confess Christ before men. You have that advocate with the Father, the great high priest who confesses you. Option number two, Deny Christ before men? Well, Jesus will just deny you before His Father. 
And when, when the sin that we have all committed and, and sat and dwelt and soaked in for our entire lives, whenever that stands to be judged, there will have been no atonement made. That's why we say Jesus has not died for the sins of every person. It's only for those who are His. And when, when God the Father has to judge that sin, He says, has atonement been made for this one? Nope, I don't know that one, Father. Sorry, that one's, that one's not mine. That's outcome number two. And of course, when a person remains in their sin, they stand to be judged ultimately in hell forever. Again, outcome number two. Jesus has given us two outcomes. You can have an advocate with the Father, or you can stand in your sin before the Father and be judged. That should influence your decision as to whether or not you fear men more than you fear God. Now, does this mean that to confess Christ publicly earns your salvation? No, of course not. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So no, the public profession is only proof that conversion has taken place. Whereas a public denial is proof that it hasn't taken place. You're unregenerate. You're still in your sins. You're not on the side of Christ. So, non-Christians... When it comes to being a disciple, to, to following Jesus, ultimately it boils, boils down to identifying yourself with Him and He with you. And, and Him and all that He stands for. And that stance will bring hatred from the world. That will bring um, opposition because the natural man cannot stand the gospel, cannot stand this message of truth. And therefore, you will be hated by all people for His name's sake. And for some people, that's too much. They say, you know what? I love the idea of Jesus. I love being nice. I love loving my neighbor. I like the idea of heaven over hell. You know, that seed will take root just for a little bit, but as soon as the persecution comes, it, it dies away, it withers away, because it never really took strong root. It was never really there. And you will deny Christ because you never truly knew Him. And of course, in heaven, He will deny you because He never knew you in this way. You deny Him, He will deny you. You have no intercessor before the Father. You have no one to mediate the relationship. God hates sin. You are still in your sin. And therefore God will be at enmity with you and you with Him. And so my plea would be, repent. Turn to Christ. Do not try to venture into the presence of God someday in your sin on your own. There will not be a rope to drag you back out. There will only be judgment eternally forever. Romans chapter 10, some of the most famous verses on this idea says, beginning in verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There, believe in your heart. That's faith. That's trust in Christ and His work on your behalf. And then there's confession. That's public association with Christ and who He is. And then you receive this high priestly work on your behalf. Others of you, Christians... Because you truly know Christ and He is your high priest and you've been redeemed and His blood has washed your sins away, you, you don't mind. You boldly confess Christ 
In every situation, it doesn't matter. Anybody who would ask, anybody who would have a question, anybody who would bring it up, yes, I'm a Christian. I've been born again. Yes, Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to the Father but by the Son. And so you confess Christ. And my encouragement to you is just to remember again, the Father, God is satisfied. The work has been done. It's finished. You have no fear of judgment. You just do what you're supposed to do. Just be obedient now. He's already satisfied with, with, with Christ's work. So you've been set free to proclaim Christ, proclaim the gospel, confess Christ publicly, boldly, no matter what, God's satisfied. He's not going to be more happy with you or less happy with you. He's satisfied because of the work of Christ. And He is sovereign. He has eternal authority over your soul and your body. And so we should fear Him and not, not men. Don't let that fear dictate how you act. Because He is satisfied. Be encouraged. Be satisfied. Satan, wherever he is, if he is in the court of God, just moping around, groveling and saying, you see that one? See? Still sinning. See? He still sinned. And the Father will look at Christ and He will look at Him and Jesus will say, that one's mine. And the Father says, I'm satisfied. there, There is no more condemnation. So be encouraged. And do not fear. Let's pray.